0: to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You want to be opening your Bibles? As you, we just read, we'll be in Luke 18. And y'all, this is it. This is the grand finale of our study of the parables that we've been calling Jesus stories as we've been looking at many, many of the parables that Jesus taught. And it's a fitting way to end because, y'all, there is no no other parable is more central to the gospel message, more central to what Jesus is trying to get across to us with his life and his message than this one. It is big. It is important. Y'all, wars have been fought over the message of this parable, but it's one and it's kind of lost its punch for us. It's kind of lost its shock value for us. When originally, when Jesus would have told this parable, and the people listening, they would have been confused, shocked. Some of them would have been embarrassed. Like, what is this guy trying to say? But well, for us, we read this and it's very mundane. It's like, who cares? I mean, this guy's up here bragging about fasting and tithing. We don't really do that anyway. Who cares, right? And we don't like that guy. Of course we don't like him, so why would God like him? This makes no sense to us. It seems obvious, but that's because a lot of our cultural values have changed. Those things, back when the Pharisee lived, those things, fasting, tithing, y'all, that would have made him the man. He would have been very well respected in the whole culture. He lived in a culture where everyone valued things like holiness, piety, structure, authority, now, to us, that just sounds like no fun. And we like fun, don't we? We like beauty and fun and freedom and warm fuzzies and charisma. Man, that's the stuff we like. So listen, there's some cultural differences, yes, but I'm here to tell you guys, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So our little specific values may be different, even from the Pharisees back then or even other cultures in our world today, there's a constant in all of our lives, a constant pursuit of two big ideas, two big ideas with a capital B that this parable is trying to convey to us, whether you're religious or not. And it's these. The first is righteousness. Righteousness. Now, that sounds like it's just a religious word. It's not. All righteousness means is to be approved and accepted. You pass inspection. Or you take a test and you get 100 on the test. Back in the 80s, you may get that test back and say, righteous, right? That's what that means, righteousness. The second is very related. It's justification. That's the second big idea. And all justification is, is a declaration of approval by an authority. It's the declaration of approval. So the one that matters, the one that has authority, the guy that carries around the big stamp of approval, justification is when he gives you that stamp. And he says, you pass, you're approved. So y'all, it's been fair season. Many of you guys went to the Texas State Fair recently. Uh, Our youth very soon, in fact, tomorrow they're going to go up to Six Flags. And that reminded me of one of the first times I can remember experiencing these two big ideas. It's when I would go to the fair, and there would be this ride I would want to ride, and I had my bracelet, my armband, and my tickets, and I stepped up, and I wanted to ride, and then I would see this sign. Y'all remember this sign? Right? You remember, especially the elementary years, when maybe the year before you you weren't quite tall enough, but man, you know you've grown, you got new shoes, new pants, this is my year, man, and you'd walk up to that sign, and you real straight, and on your tippy toes, just get it. Trying to to meet that standard, trying to be tall enough, and remember the exhilaration when that carny looked at you and said, "You're in, you get to ride." Maybe you remember the disappointment, man, when you strained as much as you could, but you just weren't quite tall enough, and the carny said, "Get out of here, kid." Admittedly, it may not be the best illustration when the carny is Jesus, but. It's the one I the one I thought of. Listen, guys, living for approval isn't just for kids, is it? No. Each and every one of us our main driving motivation in life is a need to measure up. And a need for someone who matters to say that we measure up. So the standard may change, the standards may be different, the person who matters may change but this inner hunger remains the same think of the deep satisfaction when you got the acceptance letter or the promotion or she said yes Man, these are the times we feel this deep sense of accomplishment belonging fulfillment we matter because someone who matters says so and listen, if you're one of these people who think, you know, I don't care what anybody thinks, I don't care about other people's opinions, I'm a strong, independent man or woman, and I don't care what anybody thinks, you're kidding yourself. You're just kidding yourself. y'all. each and every one of us walk around with this image of what a man or a woman should be, and that image isn't just shaped by us. That image is shaped by tons of different influences, and we're all trying to live up to it, aren't we? Maybe the standard isn't piety or holiness. Maybe it's beauty. Maybe it's belonging, being kind of in the inner circle of the right group of people, the people that are well-liked and respected. You know, maybe it's a certain level of health, a certain standard of living. Maybe it's just something like the behavior of your children or how happy your family is. You know, there's a different standard as there are people in this room, but it's the same two big ideas. And so, in this parable, we see two men coming up seeking this justification, seeking to be approved, and only one gets it. Let's find out why. First, we meet the Pharisee. Now, if you've been in church for any period of time, or if you've just been in church the past couple months when we've been talking through these parables, you've probably been conditioned to think, oh, Pharisee, that guy's a hypocrite. Guys, he's not a hypocrite. If you and I knew this Pharisee, if he lived here, we would all say, that is a good man. He's a good man. He believed many of the same things we do, y'all. He believed God because he's God and creator and perfect. He is worthy of our excellence. He believed in personal discipline, and he practiced it. He believed practice makes perfect. He believed like our friend Yoda here. Do or do not, there is no try. I thought about doing that in my Yoda voice, but I'm not going to subject to all that. And nobody did more, maybe afterwards, the after party, I'll do the Yoda voice, okay? (laughs) Nobody did more than him. Y'all, if he lived, him and most of the Pharisees would have have been approved and admired by all of us. And sure, there were bad apples. There were absolutely bad apples, but many of them, they'd be the best people you know. They were the best scholars. They were the most doctrinally sound. And so if we were looking for a Bible study or looking for a book to help us understand the Bible, y'all, we would have read their books. They were the most faithful. They lived in a time of synthesis of a lot of different cultures where a lot of people were trying to take the Judaism, the faith that their parents had passed down to them and blend it with all kind of other Greek influences and all kind of influences from all over the world, but not the Pharisees. They said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep the faithful practice of of Judaism as it was handed down to us. Put it simply, guys, they were the conservatives. They were peaceful and respectable. There were other groups, kind of crazies like the zealots. Man, they'd start riots and they'd be violent. They'd kill people left and right, and they were crazy. Not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were respectable. And so in verse 11, we meet this Pharisee, and we hear about a prayer that he prays, and he, he, he lists kind of these things that he's not. But when he says, I am not an adulterer, we believe him. This means he was a good husband. He was faithful. When he says he was unjust, that means he didn't cheat. And you know what? If he told you he was going to do something, he did it. This is the guy that you could count on. We learn from his prayer that he fasts twice a week. You know how much fasting was required according to the law? Once a year. Once a year is all he had to fast. And this guy is depriving himself of food twice a week. And then we learn how generous he is. He said he pays his tithe of all that he gets. Well, that's not what, what was required. What was required was to pay a tenth of what you Uh, create, what you generate. So if you had crops, a tenth of the crops. If you make income, a tenth of your income. But he also gave a tenth of everything he acquired. So it would be like you going to the grocery store and then giving away a tenth of the groceries you bought every time. He's far more generous than us. You may not know this. Today, the average churchgoer today gives about 2.5% of their income so statistically, we know this guy was at least four times more generous than us. What's wrong? Is it the things that he's doing? No, the things that he's doing are great. They're admirable. They're good. That's not what's wrong. What's wrong is his heart. And Luke, as he often does, he, right off the bat, he tells us something is wrong. Back in verse 9, we find out this guy he had really two big issues. The first was he trusted in himself. It says he trusted in himself for his own righteousness. You know what that is? Trusting in yourself for your own righteousness? That's when you try to stack up your own stuff to stand on. It's when you try to stack up your own stuff to meet that standard that says you got to be this tall to ride. And so you may look at the standard, you know, and it was way up there, it's super tall. I can't get there on my own. Let me stack some things up. And so you may say, you know what, I'll have some quiet times here. And you know what, the longer the quiet time, the taller this box is going to be. And so let me stack that up. Oh, what's next here? Maybe, I mean, this is good, but it's not going to get me that high. So let me lead a Bible study. That's what good, respectable men do do. They lead a Bible study. So let me do that. Okay, well, that's not quite it. Maybe let me try something else. And y'all, this is the biggest box because I think this is the biggest one we do. And it sounds kind of silly when you say it out loud, but I think it's absolutely true. You know what our go-to is when we really want to make our righteousness for ourselves? I'll just be nice. Right? I'm just going to try really hard to be the nicest guy around, the nicest guy I can be. And that's us trusting in our own righteousness. And it's illustrated by his prayer. It's really not a prayer. It's disguised as a prayer. It's like a costume of a prayer. But really what it is, is a pat on the back, right? He uses God's name once, the first word. And then after that, in his short prayer, he uses the first person personal pronoun five times. It's really about him. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine getting a thank you letter that was all about what the other person has done, right? At first, I was like, that's ridiculous. Then I thought about it more and I was like, that's kind of brilliant, right? Because not only do you get to remind the person of all the things you do, then you get the added bonus of being the nice guy who wrote the thank you letter. So I thought I'd give this a try, and I hope you don't mind we take a little break here. Y'all, I wrote a love letter to my wife, Melissa. You know, and I hope all you husbands out there, y'all can take note, uh, learn from our good example of our wonderful marriage. So this is for you, babe. Melissa, thank you that I'm so handsome. (laughs) We were both thinking it, so I thought I'd just write it down. Every time you talk to me, I immediately shut down all electronic devices and silence the children. I always take out the trash without you having to ask the first, second, third, fourth, or even fifth times. Every day when I come home, I immediately run you a bath, make you some hot tea light candles, and I take the children away to an undisclosed location so you can relax. And I know exactly when to come home with two dozen flowers, of course. Love always. Clint, this is for you, babe. Here you go. From me to you. I, and I dotted the eye with a heart right there for you, too. Wasn't that romantic, guys? No! No, that's not romantic. It's full of self-centeredness, right? Well, that's this Pharisee. He's got a costume of God-centeredness on, but underneath it's really just self-centeredness. You know what this means? know what this means? This means that you can keep God's law and break it all at the same time. You can be giving, but really all you're doing is buying, trying to buy God's favor. You can be fasting, which is supposed to be an act that shows our utter dependence on God. You can be doing that as an act of independence, saying, God, I got this. I know, you laid out the law, and I'm going to meet it. I'm going to... In fact, man, I'm going to knock this thing out of the park once a year, please. I'm going to do this thing twice a week. For most of us, the ways we trust in our own righteousness, the, way, the things we try to stand on, y'all, they are good things, but our good deeds are tainted. Because even while we're keeping the law, we're breaking it. So That's the first issue of, of his heart. He's trusting in himself for righteousness. Here's his second issue. He treated others with contempt. That word contempt, it means disdain, to reject somebody, to utterly dismiss someone. They're not even worth your attention. And here's what you need to know, y'all. These two things, they always go together. Always. Self-righteousness and contempt with others always go together. And we can see it in his prayer in verse 11. It says, when he stands up to pray, he goes and what? He stands by himself, right? This would have been a very common practice for the tax collectors. I'm sorry, for the Pharisees. Because why? They were trying so hard to measure up, to be righteous, to be clean. And if one of us unclean jokers got too close to them, man, we can make them unclean. We could bring them down so they'd stand by themselves. He's doing, simply put, what we always do when we're working hard to measure up we separate ourselves from other people who don't hold the same standard. And guys, listen, this is gonna be hard to admit. This can be really hard to admit to yourself, but think about it. Do you really think you don't ever separate yourself in your words, your thoughts, and your deeds from others who don't measure up to your standards? We all do this, of course we do. How do you treat less attractive people? People who maybe aren't as committed to the things you're passionate about, maybe who don't go to the Bible studies, maybe who you view are too weak or they're not a good leader. People who maybe don't discipline their kids right or go to the same schools or eat and go to the same doctors as us. Do you give them the same attention? You look and you talk to them the same. I mean, come on, we all do this, don't we? In fact, guys, as Christians, our Christian culture, we have created an entire culture where you can stand alone. You never have to interact with anyone not pursuing your standard. Never anyone who's going to maybe bring you down from reaching that standard. You and I, y'all, we can go to work, school, church, live in a neighborhood, go on vacation, entertain ourselves, do everything in life with people with the exact same theology, exact same values, all accepting and striving and achieving the same standard, can't we? You know, when we get in this mode of self-righteousness, listen, other people at that point, man, they're not an opportunity for the gospel to work through us. They're a threat. They're a threat that they may keep me from measuring up. So I think knowing our hearts, knowing our own selfishness, we have to ask the question, is our church that way? Is our life groups, our Bible studies places for us to just stand alone and pray? with people who are going to help us pass our test. Guys, when I started thinking about this and thinking about my own heart, I definitely do this, and all I knew is to pray, Lord, please save us from this, please. And we see this Pharisee, man, he's stacking up his own stuff. He's trying to stand on his own righteousness, but he doesn't get justified. He, the, the, the passage says at the end, he goes away unjustified. But y'all, that's not the real shocking part. That's not the part that for the people listening would have made their jaw hit the floor. The real shocking part is how on earth does this tax collector go home justified? How on earth does God look at a tax collector and say, yeah, you can get on the ride, you measure up? That would have been unbelievable. Now listen, if, if there's anything that gets a little tiresome teaching through the parables, it's explaining over and over again how bad the tax collectors were, okay? Okay. And that's very telling. It's like every time Jesus needed an example of a bad guy that everyone was gonna agree with, he just threw out tax collector. And everyone's like, yeah, that sounds about right. I'll put it this way, okay? The tax collector is Jesus' Hitler. Right? If we need to all agree, worst human being ever, I throw out Hitler, y'all are all like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. That's the tax collector for Jesus. No one can think of anyone worse. In fact, think about today, try to modernize us a little bit. Let's pretend we're not governing ourselves anymore. Canada has invaded, y'all. It finally happened. I'm sorry. And Canada is now ruling us. One of you has gone to work for them. In fact, one of you has gotten very wealthy going to work for them. You know what? There's not anyone in this room, every single person in this room has been cheated, threatened, and stolen from by this person. That's the tax collector. So you can see he was very different from the Pharisee, but you know what? There's one difference that matters, only one, and we find it in his prayer. His prayer is very short. It's just six words in the original Greek, and we find it in verse 13. It's a prayer full of sorrow. He won't even approach God. He won't even look up, and as he stands to pray, he beats his chest. He beats his heart like this. That would have been a gaudy, inappropriate show of emotion, very undignified, very unusual in prayer. It was an expression reserved for the most extreme anguish, and they would beat their hearts because they understood their heart was the seat of their sin, and so it's this expression of sorrow for all the sin stored up in my heart. As he prays, he doesn't call himself, as we translate it in English, a sinner, like we do often, you know, hey, I'm I'm just a sinner, just like all of you guys. We're all the same, right? To kind of minimize it. No, no, no. There's a definite article in the original language. He calls himself the sinner. It's an absolute phrase, one without comparison. He's not looking around at all the people around him. He is looking at God, and he's saying, God, if you are the standard, I am the sinner. And he prays this one request that is absolutely telling. He says, be merciful to me. And the word he uses is full of meaning. You can only really understand it if you are standing where he was standing. There's a general word for mercy, L-E-A-O, which you may have, you know, read the Bible. Uh, A blind man comes up to Jesus, says, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's this general word for mercy. It means have some compassion, have some pity on me, and heal me. That's not the word he uses. The word he uses actually means propitiate me. Now, that's a big $5 theological word. may not mean much to you, but where he was standing, it meant everything. Remember, where are they? Where are they standing? In the temple. Well, what was in the temple? In the temple, there was an area in the inner court called the Holy of Holies where they understood that God's presence dwelt. But it dwelt, it sat above an Ark of the Covenant. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? The law, the Ten Commandments, the tablets that Moses got from Mount Sinai. And so the picture was God's presence looked down on his people through the law. And when he looked at his people through the law, what did he see? That his people had violated the law, that his people had sinned. Well, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and really on the lid, there was something called the mercy seat. And see, it's a problem that God will look through His law and see that we had violated it because only the righteous, only the perfect can be in God's presence. So what they would do, once a year during the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur, the high priest, he would go, he would slaughter an innocent lamb, and he would take some blood from that lamb, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so now what's the picture? God's presence. He looks down, and he sees that the demands of the law have been satisfied. The blood of that substitute has paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And so it was that way, their way of saying, for another year, none of you have to die for your sins. Because the blood of that innocent lamb has been the substitute penalty and has been sprinkled on the mercy seats. And that's what God sees when he looks down on his people. So that's what propitiate means. It means a substitute payment. And that's what the tax collector is praying. He's saying, God, mercy seat me, propitiate me. That is literally his prayer. And notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, God, hey, just casually minimize my sin. He's not saying, hey, God, bring that standard on down a little bit. He's essentially saying, God, find a way to accept me that doesn't kill me. He's saying, God, lift me up. Your standard. You know, this whole parable is meant to help us understand one huge doctrine, the cornerstone of our faith, and it's the doctrine of justification by faith. That's what this whole thing is about. And that may sound, listen, that may sound like some lame phrase you've heard a million times, kind of tired and boring, but I promise you, I promise you this this is the battleground for your soul every day of your life? What makes you okay? What makes God or whatever authority look at you and say, yeah, you measure up, you're accepted, you're good enough? I simply cannot overstate the importance of how you answer this question. The answer to this question, it's what launched the Protestant Reformation that we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of. It's what launched the first great awakening here in America. And answering this question wrongly has launched countless false gospels. I said, I can't overstate it, so let me see if I can let some other guy overstate it. Martin Luther said this about justification by faith. He says, it alone begets, nourishes. Builds, preserves, and defends the Church of God. Without it, the Church of God cannot exist for one hour. Our relationship with God crumbles without this doctrine of justification by faith. So what does justification by faith mean? Well, to find that out, let's turn to the passage that made the light bulb come on for Martin Luther. Romans 3. We're going to just spend a little time in Romans and we'll start off in verse 23. This passage explains how Jesus fulfilled this Old Testament picture of the mercy seat. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And y'all, I think the first part most of us get, we all sin, most of us understand that, but what's the standard? How tall do you have to be to ride? God's glory, perfection, Right? keep going in verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, and here's that word, propitiation, a substitute payment because of His blood to be received by earning it, works, being nice, faith, a faith this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He may be, and listen to this last phrase, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is both just and and the justifier, which is kind of problematic. Yes, we want God to justify us. We want Him to look at us and say, you measure up, but we kind of want Him to do it on a whim, right? You say, oh, never mind about all that, it's fine. But if God looks at us and declares us righteous, but we aren't actually righteous, we're not actually tall enough, that makes God a liar. That makes Him un. And so, if he is going to say we are righteous, guess what, guys? We have to actually be righteous. So, what we need, y'all, is not only a substitute payment for our sin, we need a substitute perfection. We need to actually be tall enough. So, how does that happen? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. A perfection outside of ourselves has been given to us, a substitute perfection. And this is so important, guys, because most of us, again, freely accept that we've sinned. But what we can't seem to get through our heads is that we have no righteousness to contribute. If you and I think we can add one little molecule to a, of a height to our standard to get there, we're fooling ourselves. In fact, y'all, what we find out is we get, we get these things that we think we can stand on, and they're just empty boxes like this. They don't, ugh, they don't make us any taller. They don't get us any closer to the standard. They're nothing. Can I get this off my shoe? Okay. So glad I didn't just eat it right there. Here's what justification by faith means. Justification by faith means perfection can only be given. It cannot be earned. Your acceptance, your measuring up can only be given. It cannot be earned. Through Jesus is the only way God can look at us, look at the standard and say, you're tall enough, you get to ride, come on in. So Are you like the Pharisee? Trusting in your own righteousness. Well, if you're like me, in a moment of honesty, that's kind of a hard question to answer sometimes. So I came up with a couple tests, a couple questions to ask yourself. The first one is this, how fearful and miserable do you get when you fail? How fearful and miserable do you get when you fail at your job, fail at church, fail as a mother, father, husband, or wife? Because the reason so much of our religion, so many times, is overbearing. It's unwinsome. It's because we're all trying to score points all the time, and we can't do it, and so it makes us miserable. And so sometimes we're here, and we're doing all the works, and we're doing all the things, but underneath, you know what? We're anxious, jealous, insecure, fearful, controlling, you name it. But when you... Time's a failure. You find that in your heart, this anxiety, this, oh, no, this panic, I've got to measure up. Follow that thread in your heart. And here's what you're going to find. Somewhere along the way, you're trusting in your own righteousness. You're trying to stand on your own stuff, and it's not going to hold you. Here's the second test, second question. Is ministry all about helping other people? You know, a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to make the rest of the world behave, don't we? Right? And so we come and all our prayer requests about all those people out there and all our discussion in Bible studies about oh, all those millennials out there just don't get it, you know? You notice the Pharisee didn't ask God for a thing. Didn't ask Him for a thing. Wow. Well, he doesn't need anything from God that He doesn't intend to earn or provide Himself. Listen, guys, you don't go to the doctor to talk about all the sick people out there. You go to the doctor because you're sick and you need healing. That's what we're doing here. We're all sick, and we all need healing. So if you look up and you find yourself, everything you do, the spiritual, is all about out there. You're ignoring your sickness. And here, and I'm telling you, when you find that in your heart, again, follow the thread. And somewhere along the way, you're you're trying to stand on your own stuff. So what do we do? What do we do? When, not if, we find the self-righteousness in our hearts. Just two things quickly. First, remember, self-righteousness is deadly because it's deceiving. Self-righteousness is deadly because it's deceiving. Lots of differences, again, between the tax collector and the Pharisee. Only one difference that mattered, an awareness of need. That's the only difference that mattered. The Pharisee thought his righteousness, his acceptance could be earned. The tax collector realized it couldn't. An awareness of need. Our self-righteousness deceives us into thinking we don't have that need. And y'all, this is not an isolated story. Over and over, it's like a record on repeat. Jesus tells stories where there's good guy, bad guy. And every time bad guy realizes he is blind or he is sick or he's a sinner or whatever it is, and Jesus gladly, willingly, with joy, steps in to help him. And it's the good guy who thinks, I'm fine. Self-righteousness is deadly because it's deceiving. You know what? Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you've been in church a lot, and maybe you're realizing just how big of a need that you have. Maybe you're realizing that all this good stuff I can't stand on. I don't have anything to stand on. I'm here to tell you at any point, anytime you want to, you can pray like this tax collector. Mercy seat me, God. Propitiate me, God. And the parable says that tax collector went home freely accepted. And you can do that today. Finally, this, this is what I'd say to people like me who grew up in church and try really hard to do all the stuff. Stop getting off the rod to see if you measure up. Stop getting off the rod to measure up. Y'all following Jesus, all the things we do around here, man, that's the rod. That's like the Ferris wheel. It's how we experience Him. It's how we experience new life in Him. It's how we get rid of the sin that entangles us and holds us down. It's how we love and serve other people. But we're so bad about, man, this Ferris, this Ferris wheel is great. We're having so much fun. Wait, 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 Stop the ride. Let me get down here and get, put my back up to the standard again and see if I measure up. Okay, and then we can keep going. Cuz stop. The word for you and I when we do that is repent. And here's why. When you're a child of God, when you've been accepted by God and declared righteous by Him, when you climb down off that Ferris wheel, you know what you find? You don't find this. You don't find this standard anymore. Instead, you find this. just a cross. No more hoops to jump through. No more standards to measure up to. Just a cross. It says your sins have been paid for. In God's eyes, you are